BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. One of the things that's gotten me through this year has been reading some really great books by authors whose work is inspired by their childhood growing up right here in the Golden State. And we've been able to talk to some of them on our show this year. So we wanted to share some of our favorite conversations with California authors as we say goodbye to 2022. We'll hear from Saba Tahir, who grew up in her family's motel in the Mojave Desert and who says her award-winning novel took a lot of self-love and hope to write. Love and hope for the little kid out in the desert who didn't know how to deal with the difficulties that came her way, but who survived them. And Jaime Cortez, whose collection of short stories draws on his childhood growing up as a queer kid in a Central Coast farmworker camp. So I didn't realize that that was uh, in any ways kind of unusual or out of the norm until I began attending school and I saw that, oh, okay, most kids don't live like this. Other people have indoor plumbing when they go to the toilet. Uh, other people have telephones in their house. Plus, a conversation with political commentator and humorist Wajahat Ali, who grew up in Fremont. His memoir chronicles almost dying from a heart condition, his parents going to jail, but the book is funny. I think humor is important for us to simply have catharsis, to have joy, right? For people of color to have joy. It's the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Outside, the sky is heavy and close. I get a whiff of Mojave petrichor, that singular scent of rain falling on dry earth mixed with sweet creosote. Amma got grouchy when it rained, hating the snarled traffic, leaking motel roof, and flooded streets. But to me, rain in the desert felt miraculous. That's an excerpt from Sabah Tahir's young adult novel called All My Rage. It recently won a National Book Award. It's based on her experiences growing up in her family's 18-room motel as the daughter of Pakistani immigrants and as one of the few South Asians in her rural town in the Mojave Desert. When we spoke last February, I asked her about what it was like to grow up in a motel. The motel was this experience of extremes. 
Sometimes it was wonderful. Sometimes it was awful. And I think the thing that I remember the most are all the different types of people who would come through. And everything I learned from how to curse <laughs> to, you know, the different ways that people expressed kindness. Um, we had a tenant once who paid us with a bird mm. um, because I think he didn't have enough money to make rent, but he had all these birds that he loved that he kept in the room. But we also had people who wouldn't pay rent, defaced rooms, who called us names, who were abusive. And so it really was an experience of extremes. Well, this book features two teenagers. They're both Pakistani-American, Salahuddin and Noor. They're longtime friends, and they're both kind of outcasts at their school. Noor works at her uncle's liquor store. And, you know, one of her big dreams is getting out of Juniper and the desert and being able to go to college at UCLA. You can't sneak into the Juniper Mosque because it's not exactly a mosque. It's a 12 by 12 room in the north wing of the All Faith Chapel on Juniper's military base. Hindus get the room on Thursdays, Muslims on Fridays, Jews on Saturdays. Protestants get it the rest of the week. I haven't been here in months because it requires going through the gates of the military base. And that means I have to show my ID and answer questions like, where are you going? And why? And wait, we have a mosque on base? From soldiers holding giant guns. Today, though, I have time. Oluchi, the hospital's coordinator, let me off early. Go have a life, Noor, she said. Go to a party, live a little. You're like a grizzled old sea dog in a teenager's body. But I'm not in a partying mood. I'm in an, oh crap, I better pray, mood. Since my last rejection, I've gotten another. Northwestern doesn't want me, which only leaves UCLA. This Friday afternoon, there are five other people at the mosque. Imam Shafiq, Khadija, an army guy in camo, and an older couple I don't recognize. There's no sermon at this time. Imam Shafiq saves that for the noon namaz. Prayers just started when I enter, and Khadija beckons me to sit next to her. But today, all I can think is that if I don't get into UCLA, I'm stuck in Juniper, working at the liquor shop. That's what you actually did in your own life. You left the desert and went to UCLA before, you know, heading to the Washington Post, becoming a journalist. How much is Noor based on your own life? I think there are parts of Noor's personality, particularly her love for music, that are very much based on my life. Um, I also worked um, not in a liquor store, but in a gas station. Mm. But, you know, I experienced that sort of existence where you work at a place and people think they know everything about you because you work there. And I think that's something Noor is also dealing with, where people just assume that because she works at this liquor store, she is, you know, she has these qualities or she is this type of person or this is the type of future that she has. And I definitely experienced that as a young person working um, post high school, you know, during one summer at my father's gas station. The family motel in this novel is run by Salahuddin's mom, Misbah. She's just got these really beautiful passages that come in intermittently between the teenager's story, her memories of how she came from Lahore, Pakistan, to the Mojave Desert. Lights twinkled in the distance, cheerful against the empty midnight desert surrounding them. As we turned off the highway and down a narrow connecting road, strange rock formations rose up around us. It felt as if we were in another world. 
My stomach jumped in excitement. This was the beginning of a new adventure, the kind I'd wanted to have as a girl. The town appeared almost abandoned, other than a McDonald's where a lone car dawdled. A police vehicle roamed the main avenue, slowing down as we passed. There, I pointed to a battered green sign beside a parking lot that said McFinn's Ford. Yucca Avenue. We parked beside a cluster of low structures. In front of them, a waist-high white wall formed a rectangle around three pale trees and a stretch of dead grass. The trees clacked in the wind. Beyond the front yard, a squat building with a broad glass window had a single light glowing within. The rest of the motel was dark. A cat watched from the brick wall, unafraid. When I emerged from the car, the wind was so strong that it nearly ripped my hijab off. A large, unlit sign moaned like a cranky old man. Yukaipa in motel, it said. The first thing we must do, I told Tufik, is give this place a new name. You know, your earlier series was really more fantasy. What made you feel ready to mine your own background and do something that was a little bit closer to your own lived experience now? I don't think I was ready. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wrote the book over the course of 15 years. Wow. Um, and I think what I learned in that time was the depth of my own strength. Um, for years, I wrote this book in isolation. I didn't share pages. I didn't talk about it with, with anyone. It was just this conversation that I was having with myself. And it was one that required patience and that required kindness. Um, I've never been a person who thinks a lot about, you know, self-love, um, but this book required a lot of self-love and a lot of hope mm. to write, um, you know, love and hope for who I'd become as an adult and love and hope for the little kid out in the desert who didn't know how to deal with the difficulties that came her way, but who survived them. Saba, do you feel like the person you've become, you know, successful author, uh, mom, you know, an adult now, do you feel like the young Saba could have envisioned how your life would have turned out? Oh, absolutely not. I think the young Saba would have been thrilled. <laughs> she would have been so happy. Um, I don't think because of any of the success I think because all she ever wanted to do was tell stories. And that was not something that I had the courage to do until I was in my late 20s. I didn't even call myself a writer until I was in my early 30s. So I think young Saba would be really proud of, of big Saba. <laughs> Author Saba Tahir talking about her book, All My Rage, which came out this year. Olga goes to the first person is Sylvie. She cuts off a little piece of donut between two fingers, holds it next to Sylvie's mouth and says, body of Christ. Sylvie says, amen. Stop, says Caesar. Everybody knows girls can't be no priests and you can't pretend to do Holy Communion, man. That's blasphemy. That's author Jaime Cortez reading Jesus Donut from his book of short stories called Gordo. Olga don't care. She puts the little piece of donut on Sylvie's tongue. Sylvie closes her mouth and kneels there, real quiet, with a little smile on her face. Caesar points a finger at Olga's face and shouts, I'm not going to do no blasphemy for no 
Gonna Caesar looks at me and says, come on, Gordo, let's get out of here. He walks away and in a few steps, he looks back and sees me on my knees. Are you coming with me, Gordo? He asks me. I will, I say. Soon as I get some donut, Caesar looks at me and I think I'm in trouble. The collection is set in the Central Coast farmworker camps where Jaime grew up near Watsonville and San Juan Bautista. By the time he was 10, he and his sister were veterans of the annual garlic and potato harvests. The book, which he says is semi-autobiographical, is really a journey about queer self-discovery and about the complex identities that don't fit the usual stereotypes of Steinbeck country. But there's also a lot of humor in these stories. When I spoke to Jaime Cortez back in January, I started by asking him about his experience as a queer kid growing up in a farmworker camp. For me, growing up in a farmworker camp was the perfectly normal experience. I didn't realize that that was uh, in any ways kind of unusual or out of the norm until I began attending school. And I saw that, oh, okay, most kids don't live like this. Other people have indoor plumbing when they go to the toilet. Uh, Other people have telephones in their house. Uh, As far as the queer piece of it, one of the things that I was really thinking a lot about as I wrote the book was what it means to be a, a queer kid, but to not have language for that yet, to not understand what that means. But in the age that the main character, Gordo, is in, who is uh, my avatar, basically, uh, that boy, in, in many ways, uh, he doesn't have language or a, f- a framework quite yet. He just has this dawning understanding that uh, being different can be really perilous. Was Gordo your childhood nickname? That is one of many things that I was called. I, I cycled through many nicknames as a kid from my parents because my dad was very big on nicknames. Depending on what the nickname is, <laughs> it can be something that's actually kind of, um, you know, like to be called gordo. That means you're, that's basically saying you're a fat kid. And as uh, for me as a little kid, being fat was like something I found really embarrassing because it was, it made me, again, it's something that made me different. Uh, and so I had, you know, some shame around that, body shame. Being called gordo was, was you know, was certainly something that added to that, like that anxiety about uh, my appearance. One of the stories that really speaks to me is where Gordo's dad wants to have him start boxing and buys him boxing gloves and this Lucha Libre mask and, you know, wants him to start jumping rope. You want to just tell us a little bit about that uh that dynamic between Gordo and his dad? Yeah. Most of these stories are overwhelmingly based in real things that happened. Uh, my father uh, bought me boxing gear. I pick a spot in front of the house and I begin jumping rope. My pa looks pretty excited when he sees me jump. My dog Lobo comes running to see what's going on. Caramba, gordo. You got good reflexes, mijo. Good feet, he says. I never seen my father so happy before. And I start to jump faster and faster. And when the rope hits the ground, little rocks and dust pop right up. My papi's watching me. 
and he's laughing. He's so excited. He even jumps up and down a few times. Lobo's excited too. His tail is wagging and he starts barking. I start to sing my favorite jump rope song that I learned from Sylvie. I'm a little princess dressed in blue. Here are the things I like to do. Salute to the captain. Bow to the queen. Turn my back on the submarine. I can do the tap dance. I can do the splits. Don't! He yells. I stop. Don't what? I ask. Don't sing that song. I'm breathing hard from jumping, but I'm also thinking hard. I look at his face. If the next thing I say is the wrong thing, I'm gonna get hit. Should I sing a different song? I ask. No, hijo, no singing. All you do is jump and count, jump and count, okay? Every day you're training, you try to jump a little bit more. Okay, I say, I'll count. You know, looking back on that gesture of his to buy me that boxing gear, I, I really felt a lot of, of compassion for my father in that moment because he lost his father when he was a very small child and had to go out and, and work in the world to support the family from the time he was four or five years old. He was out selling newspapers by himself in Mexicali. He experienced, you know, a lot of the need to survive and to fight, to physically fight. And so the way he understood the world was one where that possibility of physical combat was always present and that risk of it was always present. And so if you're going to take care of your son, you need to have him be prepared for that. And of course, the kid in his queerness, he's unpacking all this boxing and wrestling gear. And the thing that really excites him is the jump rope because he's a sissy boy and he likes jumping rope. <laughs> and so it was this complete thwarting of the, the intention of the gift. Raimundo the Queer's great gift and burden was to look any woman in the face and envision the perfect hairdo for her. The route to maximum beauty always seemed clear to him, a luminous path that glowed as if marked in reflective highway paint. When asked, he told his clients the truth and pointed the way to the Via Bella, but not everyone was ready to walk that narrow path. Sadly, they could not imagine the glories of what he saw for them, the haircut that soared beyond fashion and even taste to hover in the rarefied realm of eleganza. You've also got a lot of humor in these stories. I mean, there's a lot of, of funny stuff and moments of levity. Why is humor important to you? I grew up with funny people. Mm -hmm. my, my parents were funny. My grandparents were funny. It was a survival mechanism to survive the rigors and really the horrors sometime of life is to be able to, to deploy that gallows humor uh, to, to kind of step back, take a breath, and, and just laugh. If for no other reason than because you made it through and you're still alive. So that was one thing. I think the other thing that uh, that is important for me is that without the humor, I think my stories could easily sink into the realm of the abject. Uh, 
just the poverty, just the violence, just the pain, just the fear. If I did not have the humor to leaven it, it would become a kind of ad- abject experience. And I don't think of, uh, of my childhood for all of its rigors, I don't think of it as abject. I just think of it as full. It's just, it, was, it was just the fullness of life. Jaime Cortez, his book of short stories, is called Gordo, and it was a finalist in the Lambda Literary Awards for gay fiction this year. I'm about as American as chicken korma, apple pie, and chai, but even after 40 years, I'm still told to go back. Go back to where you came from. It's an insult that unfortunately many of us have heard. For political commentator Wajahat Ali, it's also the title of his memoir, released earlier this year. It traces his childhood in Fremont, his activism as a UC Berkeley student after 9-11, and it uses humor to explore challenges he's faced as a son, a father, and a writer. I spoke with Wajahat Ali earlier this year. You always wanted to be a storyteller, and you write about that in this book. And of course, for those of us who have Desi immigrant parents, that's not exactly their dream for us. Never. No, that's never the dream. Uh, the dream is what I call the Holy Trinity, the checklist of success. And in the book, uh, the chapter three on this path towards you becoming American, uh, I offer the, the helpful recommendation, do something useful. And if with your permission, may I read a section of the book? Yes, please. As far as I can remember, I always wanted to be a storyteller. However, I was the only son of Pakistani immigrants and in our community, the occupations consisted of the Holy Trinity. To refresh your memory, they are the following. Number one, the doctor. Number two, the engineer. Number three, the businessman who somehow makes enough money to buy a two-story house, a nice car, marry a nice wife, produce 2.1 good children, and then send them to a good school. The only other possible occupation was number four, failure. This is the immigrant checklist of success. Successfully accomplish and check off the boxes, then smile and nod in front of the community gatherings, and you will have accomplished the American dream. Early on in my writing career, several uncles and aunties in my community used to ask me to my face, Beta, why don't you do something useful? Yeah, it's a question those of us who've gone into storytelling or, or basically anything that's not being a doctor or an engineer get regularly. So much of this book is about you coming into self-love. Um, and I just wonder, you know, how did that journey to self-love happen for you? And how was humor part of that equation? I think for me, growing up as this awkward Desi Muslim kid who was left-handed and husky pants and shy and sick. You know, I I don't think anyone grows up and says, I want to be the other. Yay. (laughs) I want to be the guy who's a sidekick. No, you don't want to be Robin. You want to be Batman. You don't want to be invisible. You want to have a starring role. But I realized early on that I enjoyed telling stories. And there is there is a chapter in the book, which I hope resonates with a lot of people and shows the importance of mentors. A fifth grade teacher, Miss Peterson, made us do a one-page story, creative story. And I ended up writing a 10-page story as a 10-year-old. And she gave me an A++++. And then she made me recite that story, Sasha, in front of my homeroom, the same homeroom that used to bully me. And I was so terrified. I was sweating profusely. I begged her not to, but she made me. And that same homeroom for 10 minutes, they were wrapped with attention. I had them. They laughed at all the right parts. And at the end, they gave me an applause. And right then I discovered kind of a superpower. I'm like, wow, I might be able to tell a story. And that spark gave me the confidence through time to eventually, you know, 
start speaking more. And then in high school, I did improv comedy. And then in college, I did sketch comedy. And so with humor in particular, I have realized I have used it as a weapon to fight back against oppressors and bullies. I have used it um, almost as a means of looking at the absurdity of life. Some people cry, I laugh. I think humor is important for us to simply have catharsis, to have joy, right? For people of color to have joy. Some of the most profound stuff I think in this book for me is not necessarily when you're speaking to white folks, but when you're actually dissecting South Asian identity and our relationship to whiteness. Can you read us a passage about that? Sure. Uh, Once upon a time when we thought we were white and moderate. Many Muslims from my father's generation who came to this country after the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act chased whiteness, which was part and parcel of the American dream. They will deny it if you ask them because they will say they came here just to make a better life for themselves and their families. In fact, I'll bet all my limited money they will be unable to articulate or even define whiteness. But whiteness they chased nonetheless, even though they knew they would never fully grasp it or be accepted in its privileged country clubs or walk through its gilded doors to executive boardrooms or be elected to its political positions or read its script as the protagonists of a TV drama or receive its blessings when they asked for Susie's hand in marriage. Still, it was enough to be adjacent to its acceptance, to be asymptotic to its power, to retreat into its warm, protective embrace, preferably in a safe, good, gated suburban community. They were like Icarus, who thought their wings made of money, wax, and upward social mobility would let them escape their brownness, their musliminess, their accented English, their multisyllabic names, their turmeric-infused fingernails. They flew with their eyes arrogantly above the ground, oblivious to the majority of Americans, their natural allies, black, brown, immigrant, low-income workers, the poor, who toiled below. They kept soaring, thanks to their exceptionalism, hard work, luck, grit, Chismet and God's divine favor, or so they told themselves. If only the blacks and the Mexicans and the other poor, lazy people pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, stopped asking for handouts, and followed their checklist, they too could fly in the clouds. They too could bask in the beauty of the American dream. You know, your family has had to deal with so much and and you chronicle in this book, you know, not only your own health problems, but your young daughter getting a diagnosis of cancer, which thankfully, you know, she was able to survive. Yet, you know, you talk a lot about the importance of just being determined to face life with joy and investing in joy no matter what comes. How do you do that? How do you tap into the reserves and the resilience to find that? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I have made the decision in life to actively invest in joy. And you have to actively invest in it like exercise. You have to make the intention and then you have to develop the discipline. Because for so many of us, uh, you know, we don't get joy. We don't get to laugh. Instead, the narrative that we were taught, right, Sasha, was suffer, but suffer well. Suffer, but suffer silently. And, And I feel like life is better with less suffering and more joy. And so my wife and I, when when Nuseba was diagnosed with cancer, we could have easily gone to this mental quicksand of why us? Why us? Why God? And that you'll never receive an answer to that, Sasha. 
And that's like a waswasa, what we say, a whisper that eats away and destroys you. But instead we said, this is life. Life happens. There's good and there's bad. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. It's how we choose to confront it. And I remember I used to sit there at night after my kids went to sleep during my daughter's stage four cancer, where we didn't know if she'd survive. And I used to imagine every narrative and scenario. I imagined burying her. I imagined the grandparents, you know, calling them saying she died because I had to prepare myself as the father. But then I made the choice of imagining her alive and healthy, wearing her Encanto Isabel dress that we had to get her, full of life. And I chose to invest in that story. And, and, and what I'll say, and it's kind of the theme of the book is, even though it feels like you're on the edge of the cliff and the cliff is falling, through the stories I give about Americans, through the personal stories that I share, you know, you never know sometimes. The page turns and brings with it a plot twist. And it leads to a better story. And I should be dead. Literally, I should be dead. But here I am talking to you, still alive. My daughter's still alive. So how can I not invest in hope? Wajahat Ali's new book is called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. I spoke to him in February. And that's it for 2022. The California Report magazine is a production of KQBD in San Francisco. Our team includes Victoria Mauleon, Susie Racho, Brendan Willard, and Jessica Carissa. And I'm Sasha Coca. Happy New Year, everybody. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 